Hello and welcome to the OT Schoolhouse podcast, your source for school-based occupational therapy tips, interviews, and professional development. Now, to get the conversation started, here is your host, Jason Davies. Class is officially in session. Hey there, and welcome to episode 119 of the OT Schoolhouse podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. To kick off this episode, I have a quick question for you, and you might have heard this one before. How is your engine running right now? Are you running a little high? Maybe you're running a little low, or is your engine running just right? Now, I must admit, right now, my engine is running a little bit high, and that is because I just had a wonderful conversation with Shelly Schellenberg and Molly McEwen about the ALERT program and how it has evolved since Sherry and Mary Sue Williams first implemented the program back in the 1980s. Now, if you're not familiar with the ALERT program or the reference I used to kick off this episode, you should be. The ALERT program is one of the OG self-regulation programs out there, and it has been used worldwide to not only support people who don't quite understand their own arousal or alert levels, but it has also provided caregivers and adults of children to have the language and analogies to use to better help their students, their kids understand their self-regulation. Sherry Schellenberg is actually one of the founders of the ALERT program, and also joining us today is Molly McEwen, who has actually helped Shelly and Mary Sue to build the wealth of research around the program and help to create what it is today. So let's go ahead and cue that intro music. And when we come back, we're going to dive further into the alert program to talk about the famous car analogy, the research behind the program, and how you can use the program in your classrooms with success. So stay tuned, and I'll be right back with Sherry and Molly. Sherry, Molly, welcome to the OT Schoolhouse podcast. How are you doing today? Sherry, we'll start with you. Oh, awesome. Thank you, Jason, for having us. It's it's good here. I'm in Albuquerque and we got a little bit of snow. Any moisture we get is always welcome. So uh, it's been a great day to hunker down and be with you on the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us from Albuquerque. And Molly, what about you? Where are you joining us from today? Well, I'm joining you from White Salmon, Washington on the Columbia River Gorge, looking out at Mount Hood and all its glory and that beautiful uh, Columbia River. So beautiful sunny day, cold. cold. <laughs> I think it's it's cold just about everywhere right now. It feels like, yeah, but uh, yeah, like yeah. So well, thank you both so much for being here. Really appreciate it. You know, the Alert program is definitely something that I learned about early on in my career. It is one of those programs where it's been around a little while, thanks to both of you. We really appreciate that. I know a lot of the newer programs that have come out that talk about social emotional learning and social emotional skills, self-regulation, really kind of throw it back to you all at the ALERT program as kind of the foundings a little bit. So I'm excited to talk a little bit about that. Before we do dive into that, though, I want to give you both the opportunity to just kind of share where you are at right now in your OT journey. So Sherry, you want to go ahead and share that first? Sure. In terms of my OT journey, it started for me really about how I became an OT in terms of the, um, I have a brother uh, who uh, is quite a bit younger than I am. um, And I was 12 when he was born and he had Down syndrome. 
And so I got to see this is uh, so now you're we're dating ourselves and or myself and I you, anybody that can do the math can figure out where I am in life. But um, I was 12 when he was born. He was born in 1970. It was the beginning of a lot of the early intervention programs. You know, up until then, a lot of our work in OT didn't exactly involve that particular population. And so um so what I got to see was this little guy who uh, needed a lot of extra support and got to go from two months until throughout he was 21 to different for his school career, basically, if you will. Uh, so the early intervention was like a half day program. It had OTs, PT speech uh, and some teachers, uh, early learning uh, specialists. And so it was a time when I was like, this is beyond amazing. And I want to know more about this. And so that's how I kind of got into OT. And then I think pediatrics in general has been fascinating to me. And I kind of haven't ever left. Do you know what I mean? I, I have a great love of working in the schools. That's where I started my career. Yeah. And so I think Right now, um, we'll talk later in the podcast about kind of where the alert program information has evolved, what we've added, stuff like that. But for right now, that's probably the best kind of general background of where I am in my professional journey, which uh, the cool thing uh, that I realized, too, about myself and OT was that um, the thought of doing one thing for forever in the rest of my work career was appalling to me, like almost <laughs> That's almost death by nervous system. And I thought OT seems like a very good bet because there's so many incredible areas that you can work in. If you felt one wasn't a match for you, you wouldn't get out of school and go, oh, no, I have done a terrible thing. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. You know, it's amazing, right? You hear about OTs that, uh, you know, they come to school-based occupational therapy for the first time right out of college, or they don't come to school-based OT until they're 40, 50, 60 years old even sometimes. So you're absolutely right. It's nice that we can work the gamut of the life cycle as an occupational therapy practitioner. So yeah, love it. All right, Molly, what about you? You want to share a little bit about your OT background? Yeah, I've been kind of all over the board, but always pretty much uh, working with children in pediatrics as well. And I came to OT um, from two parents who were both healthcare professionals and thought that uh, at the time when I went to school, there weren't a lot of options that talk about dating you uh, for (laughs) women uh, that were very exciting. Education was one in nursing. My mom was a nurse. She said, absolutely not. You don't want to do that. So uh, um, the allied health professions were a real viable option, and uh, OT won the prize, and it has uh, served me very well. I think what has served me the best is it's not a technically-based profession. It's a philosophically-based profession, and so it's a way of life. And so once you become an OT, you live it and you practice it uh, in your own life in addition to the services you offer as an OT. So I um, worked, started first in the schools, was my first, before 94-142 was even in, enacted. Um, it was a very progressive school in Minnesota that I started with and learned a lot and moved on, had other positions, and ultimately ended up in academia and taught for a while, um, and now doing primarily uh, consultation. And uh, But not, I'm not working much. I'm in up here on the Columbia River Gorge, enjoying time. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like and a great place to, to be. And talking to you. Yes, yes. And thank you for talking to us. We really appreciate it. So, 
you know what? We've learned a little bit about you both. Let's go ahead and dive into it. And I don't know which one of you wants to take this question, but I just want to ask you how you define self-regulation. Well, I will uh, start and I will let Molly wrap it up, which she is very excellent at doing. And so uh, despite her uh, trying to give her all the time she needs to be able to relax, I uh, count on her a lot for what I would term higher level questions. So, um, but uh, we we talk about self-regulation. It's the ability to attain, maintain, and change arousal appropriately for a task or a situation. And that's, you know, the words of it. It definitely involves many neurological connections and different levels in the nervous system. And so that's how we define it in our courses and uh, in in the original in the Leader's Guide book. And then, Mal, you want to talk a little bit about some of the parameters of that need. I think an important concept when we talk self-regulation is context, how we attend based on the activities we're involved with and the environment in which we are engaged. So that's pretty important piece of it is so how well we are able to stay alert and attend is dependent upon the demands of the environment. There's been a lot of emphasis of recent on this concept of self-regulation, and it really can be defined differently depending on the frame of reference or discipline from one where one comes. For example, psychologists will define it very differently than uh, a basic scientist who's studying it, um, a, neuro, a neurologist who's studying it, or a teacher who is looking at it. Um, Research and study in this concept has helped us obviously get a lot better understanding, and it has helped us to come up with and identify different levels of self-regulation. These levels of development are developmental. They're intertwined with each other, and they coincide also with the hierarchy of the nervous system. So now we know, which we didn't know before, there are different types of self-regulation, and we're going to be talking a lot about that today. But as OTs and the schools well know, sensory regulation has really been seen as a really important skill set for kids, and it helps determine success in learning. So teachers, educators have been more and more focused on it. And often what teachers and educators focus on in self-regulation is emotional self-regulation, which is not the self-regulation that we're going to be talking about today and that the ALERT program focuses on primarily, but the alert program focuses on all levels. But um, the underlying sensory motor self-regulation is really the focus of the alert program as a uh, as a good basis and foundation for higher level learning. Great. You know, I, and I want to dive into that in just a moment, the sensory motor versus the emotional self-regulation. But you hit on a, a very important topic that I think a lot of us overlook. And that is that everyone defines self-regulation differently. Uh, The same is said for sensory. Like you're talking to a teacher and they have a completely different view of what a sensory item is compared to an occupational therapist. Same thing with self-regulation, as you mentioned. They tend to think of that emotional self-regulation where depending on what we're looking at, we could be talking about emotional self-regulation or more of that sensory motor regulation. So I just want to thank you for bringing that topic up. That's not something we've ever really discussed on the podcast before. So thank you. Now, diving a little bit further into that, you did mention 
sensory motor regulation and emotional self-regulation. So um, can you dive a little bit further into that and how they influence each other? Um, I'll, I'll give a start and then we'll see where we go with it here because I do think it's really, I get reminded, Jason, you have such a good point. I get reminded of my anatomy teacher years and years ago in the coursework uh, in OT school going, let's get oriented here. And it's like, you don't want to start trying to identify a body part till you know what you're doing and what you're looking at, right? And I, I love that um, that kind of framework. And I think that's true with our definitions. So just having those conversations with people about, oh, tell me more about what you mean or what you see as far as that. Because to me, Sensory motor self-regulation is when what we start with first in the alert program, which is using sensory motor strategies to change how alert you feel, okay? And emotional regulation being typically more about your feelings. You're sad, you're mad, you're, you know, whatever. But being dysregulated or well-regulated in both are hugely important. And of course, even though they're two really distinct different forms of regulation, they are hierarchical. They are entwined. When you're really great at sensory motor self-regulation, it supports you and provides a foundation for developing good emotional regulation. When you're good at emotional regulation, it helps to support uh, the lower level uh, sensory motor self-regulation. So while they're really, uh, they affect each other, and I know as OTs, we all know a lot of this, by focusing first, our experience was by focusing first on the sensory motor self-regulation, that that gave a really good baseline. It was also something the individual, if they have the potential to be independent in self-regulation, could do for themselves. It was strategies that our teachers could use and build into routines. And it just, you know, if we want higher levels of the brain to function optimally, we want to assure that those foundational levels are strong and solid and in good place so that both can support each other. And so I think that's where that defining what we mean and being really clear and not only assuming that when we say self-regulation, that it's only emotional regulation. So Mal, I know you might want to build on that a little bit. Well, or give an example, quite simply, if one, if your level of alertness is too high or too low, for appropriate attention to whatever task or, or demand comes from the environment, then learning at a higher level, that's problem solving, uh, being able to uh, learn a new task can't occur or doesn't occur well. Um, the system then will either overreact, you'll have, we'll have temper tantrums, even adults have temper tantrums, you have a lot of disorganized <laughs> Uh, behavior, or you underreact. For example, you shut down, you withdraw, you don't participate. So emotional learning can't really evolve beyond this, what we call, and I think most OTs have heard, the fight, flight, fright response. That's very much of a biological level. And when that is not organized, then emotions are, you're, you're emoting, all right, but you can't use those emotions, like identify them, explain them, in order to problem solve and learn at a higher level. Uh, more sophisticated learning just will not occur if those lower levels of the brain and sensory motor regulation don't have some degree of organization. Sorry, Mal, didn't mean to step on you there. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's really the deal. And so 
kind of the differences in these two self-regulation systems, I think, make it really hard for a lot of us as practitioners because much of the literature, not all of it, but a lot of it addresses the perspective of emotional self-regulation and doesn't really address the nervous system, uh, the central nervous system, arousal systems, that what we call, for obvious reasons, because I did not want to run groups where I'm talking about arousal with young children, so we named it the ALERT program and took that liberty. But um, this is where I feel like as OTs, we c- I get so excited because this is a wonderful piece that we have to offer that is so valuable and to help our teachers and our parents uh, in, in this podcast, that's the scope we're looking at, right? To help them understand the concept of sensory motor self-regulation, that's totally in line with our holistic view of how we treat and wanting, you know, treat children, treat clients, and how we consult and support our colleagues, our teachers, our, our counselors, our social workers, all those folks yeah. is that an awareness of that uh, that part of self-regulation, I think, uh, plays a really huge role. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I love how detailed you both get in your answers. This is awesome. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, um, you may not feel that way by the end, but okay, let's do it. <laughs> we're also very excited about this. This is, yeah, this is yeah. a corner of the market for OTs. Uh, I hope they yeah. will Absolutely. start to understand that more and more. Many do, and many have yet to learn about it. So hopefully they will. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, Sherry, you started to dive into it. And so the alert program, one of the most famous analogies from the alert program, I think everyone knows it is the car engine analogy. And so I want to just open the door and let you all talk about how that car engine analogy fits into self-regulation for children. Cool. Well, I may I may hog this one up in terms of answering, but uh, Molly will stop me if uh, if she's got something to add here. So Mary Sue was the person Mary Sue Williams uh, was the person that really initially started the work um, in that. um, And I'll talk a little bit about how that got started. But basically what we've ended up finding is that but just by saying how does your engine run or if if your body's but rather than making it a uh, question, we really want to do the teaching. We said if we had one thing we could do over is we wouldn't say, how does your engine run? We would talk about the engine analogy first and then allow the individual to tell us about it. So uh, so I'll just disclaimer right there. But we talk about if your body's like a car engine, sometimes it runs on low, sometimes it runs on high, and sometimes it runs just right. And as I said, Mary Sue developed that terminology. We worked together on it. The main purpose was to avoid jargon and to avoid blame. So I don't want anyone in the podcast to think I'm talking down to them about their knowledge level, but keeping it simple seems to help the most in terms of how we can get buy-in and understanding across different uh, disciplines. So, um, So basically, when we avoid jargon and blame, which we want to do, of course, it just helps everyone to understand we all have engines, they all fluctuate. So what do we do about that? And how do we be able to be more independent in our ability to support ourselves, right? So it's appropriate, the engine analogy, I think what happened is it's just 
it struck a chord. It just made sense to people, right? You know, you don't drive at 70 miles an hour all the time, but sometimes it's really fun to drive at 70 miles an hour, right? <laughs> and, I, and we don't get into miles per hour, but I mean, just the engine analogy, I feel like has a lot of resonance per people. So what we found is that the uh, engine analogy is appropriate for all kinds of levels, cognitive and age levels. Uh, oftentimes, if it's older students, like middle school or high school, I would say something like when I talk to kids, this is what I tell them, right? So that they're getting to be able to be part of that analogy, but not necessarily having to embrace the the engine words if that's too uh, deemed to be too babyish or whatever, right? So we want have to have language that everybody can use and that caregivers can use so that because if for those who don't have words yet or may not be able to have words in their development, it'll be their caregivers that are going to need to do the identifying of engine levels and to be able to build things into the routine to pro to provide good comprehensive care. So um and that's kind of addressed in a couple of the links I gave you guys that you're going to be putting in yep. to a couple of the blogs and some of the information that way. So that's kind of the engine thing mal did you have anything you wanted to add on to that no we're good actually i just go ahead if i can really quickly um i yeah. was actually going to ask molly if she wanted to add on to that but also do you change how you're talking about the engine run program if you're talking to maybe a teacher and a therapist as opposed to talking to a child do you explain it a little bit differently or how does that look or is it the um, same yeah, for me, it's kind of the same. All I do is put in front of it, when I'm talking to children, I say, da-da-da, right? And so they still can understand the analogy as adults, but I'm not kind of comparing them to a car, right? Or or I could say we use the metaphor of uh, a car in order to be able to describe this. Um, it gives uh, a framework. doesn't matter how old you are, but it gives a yeah. framework to understand the analogy just is once it, it, whether you're you know a, a 3 or 5 year old or a 90 year old you understand the concept and once you understand the concept based on a simple engine analogy you can use a lot of different vocabularies but you have the concept and the organizing construct to 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 deal with it and i i will add i, I know i'm always adding geez louise so uh, but i will <laughs> add that um, in the courses, we really go into depth in that about that, Jason, because it's such a great question that you bring up and that it's not that we need you to stay with the engine analogy. That's the way to introduce it. When children have something else they are totally jazzed about, of course, we would use analogies related to that. Right. But in order to kind of get everybody on the same page at first, that's what they're, where we go. And then if we want to customize it, um, we'll get into that later, especially in different cultures or different countries. You know, it may be much more appropriate to do a different analogy, but start just so we know what the language is about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So I might have um, I might have jumped the gun by jumping straight into the car engine analogy a little bit. Um, call it clickbait, call it ear bait for podcasting. <laughs> I don't know. But taking a step back, you mentioned Mary Sue. Can you give us just a little bit of background on where the alert program came from and how it got started? Sure, sure. So um Mary Sue and I are both occupational therapists, as most of the people here would know. But she had in and now again, I'm dating myself here because but see, good things can last for a long time and be um and be modified and updated. So that's always fun. 
1987, she had the opportunity to work with an 11-year-old girl who was very bright and very capable, but her engine often went really low. And what Mary Sue realized is she wasn't understanding what her arousal levels looked like. There was no vocabulary. So she, like we have vocabulary around feelings as we develop as children. We don't have vocabulary around our alert levels. And so what she realized is she wanted a non-jargon, non-blaming way to teach this young woman who is so bright and capable that she could be responsible for and understand more about her own self-regulation. So that's when she got into the analogy, if your body's like a car engine, blah, 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 right? Now, again, this was a really bright, capable young woman. So, uh, and she was also such a wonderful um, truth teller, if if you will. You know, so many of our kids are, right? And she said, after she understood the concept, because she was very bright, it was just more like, oh, she said, you know, I think I maybe get in a fight with my siblings in the morning so that I'm in a better place to be able to get myself ready to get out the door, right? <laughs> That's funny. And, I know. And so what a beautiful thing, right? So it could be called emotional regulation. Oh, is she depressed? Is she anxious? We can go into all those things. And I'm not saying none of those are concomitant at the same time, of course. But, you know, it's it's that moment of giving kids language, just like we have for feelings, about our alert levels. That's really the goal. So the engine analogy, great. But, you know, obviously customization uh, really good. And in this case, even though she was 11 and a real bright, capable kid made total sense to her. Great. And I guess driving off of that, you've already kind of started to mention, right, that this program has been around for 30 plus years, which yeah. is like 40 plus years. No, for no 30 plus 33 or so sounds like um, anyways, <laughs> it's been around a long time. And as we all know, things must adapt. I mean, Disney has had to adapt. The country, <laughs> Everything has to adapt. Right. And so what about the alert program? How has it adapted and what has driven some of that adaptation over the years? Great. Well, again, I'll probably start it off and Molly will chime in here. So basically what's happened is we kind of thought we were going to only be developing work that related to the kiddos that we were working with at that time, Mary Sue and I, as we uh, as we started to use the analogy more, right? So what's started with it, first of all, it's based on sensory integration that airs developed. It's a framework and not a recipe. This feels so important to me. This is our you know, our jam as OTs, right, is not recipes, but frameworks. And like Molly had said, even philosophies, right, reflecting the art and the science of what we do. So it has three stages and 12 mile markers. Those have proven to be constant. And we continue to refer back to those because what we did was we put those down as we worked uh, with the information, we put those down and laid them as the order in which one learns about self-regulation. It doesn't mean you have to spend a different session on every one of those things, but this is what we found to be true for children and for adults, because of course the adults in the individual's life need to know what's going on and why we're talking engines and all that good stuff too, right? So uh, originally we had designed it thinking, oh, it'll be for children who have some learning disabilities between the ages of 8 and 12. Uh, it's a population that we had the most that we were directly working with at that time. What happened was the engine analogy made sense to people. We really didn't have language to talk about all the great observations that we do as OTs about alert levels. 
And uh, so basically that when we shared that information, it expanded into other populations. And that's better because we had our colleagues saying to us, oh, here's the application in this particular area and cognitive ability and developmental uh, ability and that kind of stuff. So the framework thing, I know I might kind of beat this to death, but um, the framework is really important to me. It's so easy to say, oh, we're just going to do a treatment plan and here's how you do it. And then that and we're going to assess what, you know, what the outcome was at the end. And that's just so belittling our wonderful um, knowledge as therapists, right? And, and in terms of best practices, lots of our colleagues contributed to us learning more, expanding it across different diagnostic and age populations. So we feel really good and really confident about how it has started and then how it's evolved and, and expanded. So, Mom, yeah. you want Yeah, it, it, I think it's important that all species self-regulate. <laughs> this is they true do. across the age so it isn't a concept that only applies to children or to children with special needs you know <clears throat> some people say well that program was developed for children so it's not appropriate for this population i have i have to tell you i can't enter a room uh in socially or personally or enter a therapeutic environment for services provided without taking in information about how this person I'm talking to organizes their nervous system through sensory motor input, through self-regulation. It just is automatic and it is the basis. Based on that, I can kind of predict how they occupy their time um, or what they're not doing or need to do. It's uh, Self-regulation is normally developing in normal developing individuals is quite automatic and self-conscious as subconscious we don't even conscientiously attend to it but we all know that people have real varied degrees of competence in their ability to self-regulate and the better self-knowledge we have the more competent and self-regulating and that's another piece of this program is it allows children and people across the age span that learn to understand their own nervous systems in a way they never have in the past um, the stuff that comes automatic, they just think happens. But no, this is what your nervous system needs to be able to attend. This is what your nervous system needs to be able to stay alert and be at your top place for taking this exam or for playing in this tennis match or whatever. How do we set up ourselves for optimal function? And once it's well understood and, and used, then that becomes automatic. People will integrate that piece of knowing that. It's not important necessarily necessary to follow all the stages and milestones as the program is developed. But as um, Sherry said, that is a developmental continuum. Once you understand that concept, then you know if somebody's not getting it, you need to go back further developmentally and understanding it. There's a developmental continuum to understanding um, self-regulation and how we all learn it and become aware of it and to develop it and to get more sophisticated in using it to learn optimally. And, yeah. um, and I'm sorry, the blog that relates probably the most to what Molly has just said is called Engine Analogy. One metaphor does not fit all. So that's just kind of a fun one people could check out. Uh, on the website, uh, uh, if they were interested. I know I interrupted you there, Jason. 
I was just going to kind of feed off of what you were saying, or both of you were saying about the recipe versus the framework. Good or bad, that is true. I mean, sometimes I get I get frustrated with OT because of that very reason. It's hard to tell people, right? We have we work off of a framework a lot of times, not necessarily a recipe is what people want, right? They want that step by step by step. How do you get from point A to point B? But sometimes there's a A1, A2, A3 before you get to, to B and a lot of sub areas and you kind of have to go back and forth a little bit. So yeah, just wanted to touch on that. And then the other thing was I was going to ask about what population the alert program was designed for. But I think both of you somewhat answered that in your response and that initially it was for this 11-year-old girl who maybe had a learning disability. It sounds like that the alert program was based off of air sensor integration, which I know was primarily looking at learning disabilities in students or in young children. And now, as Molly kind of alluded to, right, everyone has to self-regulate. And I know this program has been adapted and adopted by entire schools and entire districts and whatnot. And so they're not using it just for learning for students with a learning disability. They're using it for all students, which is really cool. I don't know if either of you want to kind of elaborate on that point a little bit. Go ahead, Sherry. Um, well, yeah, I'm, I'm really, again, that kind of is like point of pride for me that, that we're looking at something and that was, uh, the, probably the thing that I loved the most, uh, when we were working in the schools is that we had administrators who, once they understood what we're talking about, and that we could help to kind of basically help to solve the problems, right? If as a principal, you've got this kid that's constantly in trouble and we can find out how to help that to not happen quite as often, that's an amazing thing. As a teacher, if you've got a kiddo who just can't handle uh, more than a couple minutes of time before they get distracted or disrupt others or whatever, it's the, it's, the cool thing is, it's true for all of us. And I, I kind of think that maybe the pandemic emphasized that a little bit, right? Because we found out a lot about ourselves. How do we work? How do we concentrate? How do we focus? Is it good? You know, they had articles and stuff. And that's kind of a, a fun thing about the um, Are Your Best Self online course that I'll get into later. But 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 it's like there were articles all over the place, Zoom fatigue and this and that. And how do we work? And can you carve out a place where you 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 need to do your work alone in a quiet place? And then the kids are doing school over here and all these other things. So there were so many tough things about the pandemic. But actually, um, it makes sense. Like it it almost uh, amplified a lot of the information that we had to learn about ourselves and how we work and how we work best and when we work best and what we do, like you said, Mile, to set our nervous system up to be as successful in what we're doing as possible. Well, we limited our environment to just home for a lot of us. We weren't in lots of different environments. We Many people were isolating. So when they isolate, that in itself was a huge change in input to their central nervous system, almost the fact that if they went out every day to a highly stimulating environment, all of a sudden they have to stay home. I mean, it it took people quite a while to, I always say, find their pulse again, to figure out where their set point was, to figure out what. That's all nervous system modulation, nervous system, you know, their level of attention, arousal of the nervous system, to figure out where that is and then what it is that sets it off in a positive way and what it sets off in a not so positive way. 
Yeah. So that I think you're exactly right, Jason, that it just uh, self-regulation is for all of us. And the more we understand about it, the thing that I've been excited about is that what we see then is a lot more compassion about what other people are going through and understanding rather than, oh, that's just so-and-so and they irritate me and they're just awful. And, none. you know, like if we can start to learn more about that, it then helps with our compassion and understanding, even uh, even in terms of the emotional regulation, right? Yeah. So one of the things that I really appreciate about established programs like the Alert Program, uh, being around for 30 plus years, means that there's been some time for others to take a deep look at it. There's been some time for researchers to get their hands on it. And so I wanted to ask you, of course, I know there's been a lot of research, but if you could boil it down, what are some of the key research over the years that you have just been super proud of about the alert program that has come out? And I'm sure that has driven the program forward. So just wanted to ask for maybe a few highlights within the research that that you'd like to point out. Yeah, perfect. The first thing I'll say is it's so interesting because, of course, we're not doing our own research. I, Mary Sue and I will fully say we are not researchers. We are clinicians through and through. And so, um, uh, so other people do research on your information and then sometimes you find out about it and sometimes you don't, right? And so uh, the great thing is that what has happened for us is that especially in the FASD populations, there have been some beautiful uh, more, more what people are looking for sometimes, especially our administrators in terms of uh, published studies that are significant and uh Again, that whole social science thing you addressed, Jason, of, you know, well, what did they do and how did they do it and da-da-da-da-da. But um, the the FASD population research especially, uh, and you, you can find that in our um, – on our – I have it, the link that I gave you for uh, posting for people and then just on our website in the footer. It, it has all the research. But, for instance, like there was uh, – in 2018, there was a wonderful uh, study that they did. And it, uh, and oh, and I, I should brag on what I think Molly has helped me to organize and make so much better for practitioners, which is it's not just a list of uh, citations uh, for the articles. What we did is, and Molly was so helpful in this, is we went through and listed kind of the different levels of research and down to popular press, right, from the big, more scientific stuff. And then also we made a comment after each of the articles so that you could know generally what that article was about. Is it worth your time and effort to go look it up, right? As though we all have time to go, oh, yeah, sure, I'll look up these all pages and pages worth of citations that don't end, I get them and I don't even apply to my setting, right? So that part feels like important to say. So when people go to that document, they'll be well led as to what might apply to them. But the one that I'm probably the most proud about was this one by Nash in 2018. And you'll be able to find it in the um, in the document on our on the website there. And it's called Preliminary Findings That a Targeted Intervention the alert program, leads to altered brain function in children with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And that was in the Journal for Brain Science. But basically, our comment about that one is, and we have a YouTube on this one too, because previous research showed that the alert program improved behavioral regulation and executive functioning, specifically self-regulation, 
in children with emotional problems. So these, uh, in this study, they had already been identified as FASD and having emotional challenges. So the study asked if the ALERT program also leads to improved neural function in associated regions. And they uh, go on and tell the population and the age range and uh, all about the how they did a randomized control design study with pre-tests, post-test measurements, all the good a go, stuff. no go, functional MRI, you know, they, they go into all of it. But what was so cool is that at the end, they said that the findings suggested that the treated FASD groups were starting to resemble children who had never been exposed prenatally to alcohol, possibly implying that more mature neural integrity was actually a result, you know. So to have evidence like that where and the, and the functional MRIs, like that's just like totally got me psyched because then you're talking about, oh, okay, we're really seeing things. And I think that speaks to the whole and it's appropriate for all different populations, especially those that are having executive function challenge from a treatment perspective. But just um, that one got me like super jazz. That was yeah. pretty fun, you know. So um, let's see. It's not uh, very often that we get some basic research technology and evaluation um, strategies that help us look at <clears throat> applied clinical practice and its impact on actual change of the nervous system. We know yeah. we change the nervous system because behaviors change, but we don't often have neuronal, visible neurological changes that we can see in some of those CAT scans and MRIs and stuff. And this showed some, so that was very exciting. Yeah, I was just trying to figure out how to summarize that up. And you did a perfect job of it, Molly. You're right. Like, we don't get that type of research a lot. So that's very cool that that they were able to do that. Awesome. I do want to say in this, before we change topics here a little bit, is that I want to remind practitioners out there, re research informs practice and practice informs research. So just as the ALERT program at various levels and it's intertwined in different types of regulation, self-regulation, research and practice do the same things. And, and, and Sherry uh, reflects what, and I'm an academician, so I can say that. I've also, I'm also a clinician, but I'm a clinician. I'm not a researcher. But I am here to say, as practitioners, we are researchers. By virtue, virtue of measuring baselines, evaluation of your patient or client, and evaluating and measuring outcomes of your programs. Mm -hmm. And if we do that well, which is what I call program evaluation, and if you set it up, it is very significant means of research. It's a, it is research. You are providing the foundation and the basis for more highly sophisticated you know, your PhD type of research is where you can have control groups and all that, but we provide the data that suggests that further research needs to happen. So we need to make sure that we don't diss our own data that we produce on a daily basis. It's very valuable. It it yeah. helps us guide our treatment on a daily basis. It doesn't have to come out of a, a formal research project of how we make decisions. It's also based on our experience and interaction with our, our clients and patients. Absolutely. And and we've been talking about that a little bit more on the podcast about creating your own evidence. And that's something that practitioners can do. And it is, it's not easy. It, it does take a little bit of work because you do need to 
when you're implementing a program, you need to actually know what you're implementing. And that takes time and energy to set up beforehand. If you're coming up with an individual treatment on the fly, it's hard to put those together and say that you have collected data on a specific program. But if you do kind of put your treatment plan together at the beginning and think about, okay, this is what I'm going to do over the next several weeks, then at the end of that, you can go back and say, did that work or not? And then you can repeat it or change it a little bit and get more and more data. So absolutely. Great point, Molly. Well, one of the things that Molly, uh, and fair point, Molly, about that, I think a lot of times as clinicians, we don't think of ourselves as researchers. So I'm really gra- glad you brought that up. And um, the the thing I was uh, thinking about there is that Molly constantly reminds me, you know, the road that we should not take is to not consider what outcome are we looking for before we start the doing, right? You know, just giving fidget toys and movement games and stuff like that without knowing what it is that we're wanting as the outcomes. And that's one of the things, Molly, I feel like you've been so valuable in, um, in talking about that, our stepping back, Jason, you referred to it too, like stepping back, looking at what is the treatment that, what is it that we are feeling needs to change or needs to be supported for this individual? Mm-hmm. And that's, exactly. that's your outcome. I mean, that's what you're measuring. And sometimes the researchers that I will say, or clinicians will measure the success of whether or not a child goes through the milestones or hits the various stages and that's the outcome, success, no success. Well, that's part of the process. But, uh, you know, if a kid gets through the milestones, but behavior doesn't change, then, you know, then are we successful or not? No, we, we there's a reason why we're um, using a particular intervention approach like the ALERT program. We use it because we have a problem that is interfering with one's ability to be competent and successful in their daily routines and occupations. And what is that problem? This is one. This is another. If one of them relates to self-regulation, then that's the alert program is a, a viable tool. But when you apply it, you have to see, is there change in those behaviors or not? And that tells you um, whether you're successful. I love it. I love it. I love this feedback between Sherry kind of like giving big picture and then Molly just like boiling it down. To like <laughs> Exactly. It works so well. You can I love see it. how come we really need each other. There you go. <laughs> All right. So diving into our next uh, area of this discussion, I guess we can call it. I want to talk about some of the best practices for implementing the program. And I'm sure you have a ton to say about this. You already talked about the different steps to getting to to supporting a student, but what are some of those best practices for implementing this program to make sure that we're actually going to, as we just kind of talked about, use a program that actually makes progress? Well, one of the one of the best practices for implementing the alert program, um, I believe, is that we, when we're working with children, particularly if let's just keep it to children in this situation. The more we as adults understand our own nervous systems and how we ourselves self-regulate, the better we can understand the kiddos we work with. I can't tell you the number of teachers I go in and the teachers say, oh, you know, help me with this student. I've got this and this and this. And as I watch the teacher stress dealing with lots of students, a lot of special needs kids or just regular kids, I watch that teacher's nervous system and how that teacher 
regulates or doesn't regulate where they can pull themselves together, where they become organized, how they do that. And when I can mirror that back to that teacher and integrate that with the concept of the engine analogy, it looks like your engine's running pretty high. Mine would be too if I had to deal with these kids, blah, blah, blah. You get into that. Look how you are helping yourself get back organized so you can focus on your kids in the classroom. That kind of conversation. Sometimes I don't see the child for treatment over a couple sessions because I'm working with the teacher. Once the teacher has that, sometimes the child ceases to even be a problem in the classroom. The teacher's got it, can in, it, it just intuitively go at it once they go, ah, oh, that's like me when I do this. But And I need to help the teacher maybe come up with different strategies, more age-appropriate, different sensory diets than the teacher needs. So that is a huge best practice to me. We have to make it worth the teacher's while to support the self-regulation. We have to have them, buy, they have to have a buy-in. If they don't, then they have the pull-out mentality. Take the kid, fix them, bring them back. Well, <clears throat> when the teacher has more knowledge and skills, they feel more satisfied with their job, more efficacious when working with the child. So we can do a lot of modeling in the classroom. That's another big piece of implementing it. Demonstrate with the class of the child so others can see how it's done and support the child and the adults learn a lot from that. Absolutely. So I have a question then. Um, when implementing the alert program, is it best to implement individually in a small group and a whole classroom? Uh, can it be all of the above, but maybe one works better? What would you say about that? Um, I would say uh, all of the above because I've done all of the above, <laughs> and it, it requires. <laughs> but it does require different setup, different amount of time, different level of commitment to. And like Molly said, you know, um, modeling things and giving teachers tools. Um, one of the things that I find a lot as therapists, and, and why we stay away from jargon so much is that we don't want to teach the teacher to be a therapist. We want to teach, support them to be able to be a teacher. If they have new math concepts, they have to get through these. There's standardized testing that's going to happen related to this. Then we want to give them what they need to be able to do the math concepts, right? And so that's what I think is beautiful about what you had said there, Mal. And um, in I, I uh, in our online courses, we really get into what what would you do if you were doing a group? What would you do? How do you share information with uh, this person, this kind of person versus that kind of person? So I'll just say even an example of that is for teachers. If a teacher has, uh, when you go through the course and when you do some of this work and, and they look at, say, a sensory motor, the sensory motor preference checklist that we have for adults, if a teacher loves to do things in the movement area, then those would be the first things that make the most sense and they feel the most comfortable within their classroom. It doesn't mean that eventually they can't do things in all five areas of mouth, move, touch, look, and listen, right? Strategies. But we kind of want to start with where are our teachers comfortable? How do we support them? Uh, all that kind of thing. So I'd say uh, in terms of best practice, make sure that you get trained. Make sure that you stay up to date. We have Facebook and emails and newsletters and YouTubes and stuff like that. Use a lot of the resources. We have a lot of free resources on the website designed for individuals, groups, you know, uh, that kind of thing. So um, just I would just say the thing that I found a lot in terms of 
helping people, making it like kind of lightening the load for therapists was a lot of the free resources that we do have put up there. But definitely you can do it in all those different ways. I joke about, and I think this is in the uh, in the Alert Program online course, that you might not want to start out with a whole classroom of kids that have behavior disorder diagnoses and give everybody fidget toys. That's not probably your first go, right? What you want to do, though, is find out what works for these particular kiddos, and then we go ahead and introduce those things into the classroom and help to support the teacher. So, I mean, that's kind of a duh, but I mean, it's also a thing that sometimes as OTs, we get very gung-ho, and we're going to start out with the hardest situation. Let's give it some time. Let's find out what's working, as Molly said. Do fidget toys even work for that particular individual? We don't know. We're going to try it out. We're going to assess whether that seemed to be a a right match for that individual. So I hope that answers kind of the whole ball of wax, really. Yeah, yeah. And I was going to ask you about some of those activities you have up on the website, games, songs for children. But you kind of ended that answer with the word assessment, talking about assessment. And so I want to ask you about that. I don't think we even technically had this maybe in our questions today, but when it comes to assessing students, is there a particular tool within the alert program or do you recommend a specific tool for kind of assessing students' self-regulation? What would what would you uh, recommend? Well, uh, no, there is not a a specific tool in the ALERT program. What happened was it really, and our emphasis really is on when we know that there's identified uh, behaviors or challenges for self-regulation or executive function or that kind of thing, then definitely we can try the ALERT program as a viable thing to do. But there are plenty of different standardized kind of things out there. I mean, and and things keep evolving. I don't have any one favorite thing because I think sometimes just even doing general motor skill evaluation, we can see the regulatory components, right? And so I'm not dissing on standardized things. I'm just saying, I think there's, we kind of assess it in all that we do, right? Molly was talking about that. Yeah, there's some, there are some, uh, the Canadian Occupational Performance Measures, COPM has a tool for kids that is a checklist format. And I think if you use a Likert scale checklist, I've used that with teachers a lot, where they can observe a whole classroom or they can observe an individual child and there will be behaviors in which they say this child is good at this or not. And those behaviors are very basic, fundamental self-regulatory behaviors like can turn transitional from transition from one activity to another, gets along with his peers, you know, on and on. If you look at those type of activities, you have to have pretty good self-regulation to do those for elementary school. So those are, um, there are, yeah, you Therapists have extrapolated from existing tools certain developmental skills that require a high amount of self-regulation and use those as ways to measure on a scale of maybe one to five how good this kid is. And then you have a baseline pre-test, post-test. Thank you. I was fully going into that question, assuming that the response was going to be, you can use the sensory profile, you can use the SPM. And that's not the response that we got. And I actually appreciate that because 
so many times that we I, I get questions and you probably do as well from school-based OTs is like, how do I interpret the SPM? How do I I need to do the SPM or the sensory profile to look at sensor to look at self-regulation? And what I just heard you both say is that you can use alternative types of tools. You can use the COPM. You can use some more observation-based assessments to get some of that information as opposed to relying just on the SPM. And maybe you do use the SPM or the sensory profile to help you a little bit, but there are alternative methods. Yeah, definitely. And one of the things that I loved when we did a couple little projects with some students, especially middle schoolers um, that Molly, you had we had talked about doing the COPM and it's so and interesting because the the middle schoolers' perceptions of what they're great at and what they're not is very disparate with <laughs> the, the other adults, right? And so then that tells us something, right? Because then we have to be very gentle about how we show, oh, you know, some people would say this is how we show that we're really good at these particular skills, right? But the, it's that it kind of speaks to that. While we're teasing about the car engine analogy, this is really personal, right? It's our nervous system, for gosh sakes. And so we don't really want somebody point out to us, hey, you don't do this and you don't do that. And I know that's not what the OTs that are listening here would do. But remembering how scary it can be when we're talking about changing how our nervous system feels. If I can just add one, I know we're probably running short on time here, Jason, but you have to ask yourself why you're evaluating. Are you evaluating to determine the underlying issues that interfere with one's ability to perform their tasks? Or are you evaluating a level of task performance, which is like the COPM, which you can get a baseline and then watch that performance and see if it's better because that performance requires self-regulation. So there's two reasons there for evaluating. And I mean, there's probably more, but those are, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And I could come up with some more, but anyway. <laughs> no, but that actually kind of leads to the next topic that I wanted to discuss. And, you know, I remember in OT school, this was very common, and it's still a common discussion between therapists using top-down or bottom-up approaches. And so I wanted to ask you how you feel or where you feel the ALERT program fits on that top-down versus bottom-up approach and the benefits of that approach. Yeah, great question. Because that's a little bit of, um, especially in the schools, I would say that most people are thinking about top-down, right? We're going we're gonna to think our way through this. We're going to by golly, once we're past second grade, we don't get an afternoon recess or whatever the rules that are currently in play are, because now we're big people and we can sit for longer and that, that as though that's a goal, right? You know, but um, the alert program incorporates both of them because that's what we needed in our setting when we were utilizing it, that depending on the individual's cognitive level, it would be a terrible shame to waste the ability to use both. When it's used well, the alert program is supporting from a bottom-up way for that top-down to be able to be reflective, problem-solving, all those other good things, right? So I, I guess my opinion is that this is, again, where we shine as OTs. A lot of programs are only thinking it through. Um, so now I'm going to, I have to be careful how I word this, but there was a professional 
from another discipline who had said to me at one time, I know you guys are doing all this great stuff with your kiddos. And I came across this program where every five minutes this buzzer will go off and the kid has to check whether they were paying attention or not. Ugh, right? Like the, my, the, like my innards get tight just hearing that. that That's such a top-down way. Now you've interrupted the person if they actually were paying attention. Now you've interrupted them with this alarm. And so what a bad use of technology, in my opinion, there. But this is where, as OTs, we, we get it. We know that we want both. We want to support the nervous system from the bottom up. And we want to use top-down skills to say, well, this is where we have to always use our words. This is where we have to know that if we can't use our words, we need to take a break. This is where we know that we can ask the teacher for this help, you know, whatever. And um, and kind of uh, piggybacking on that, I'll say that um, this is a big emphasis to me. And uh, it's important if you've been trained in the ALERT program, you understand that, that we would have separate gauges because these are separate areas of the neurological system. One for measuring our engine speedometer, one for measuring our emotions. Don't put them together. High does not equal angry and low does not equal sad, right? We, I can be in a low state of alertness taking a nap on the couch. I am perfectly content, right? So this is that moment to just be really clear, as great as we are holistically, uh, being very precise in how we're supporting the correct neurology of those kind of things. And we want to have both. But what we found is we needed to start, the kiddos we were working with uh, and the and young people that we were working with, we needed to address that sensory motor part, support that, then we could have conversation time from that top down kind of way about, well, what happens when this happens? And what do we do? And what are acceptable things that won't cause other people trouble, won't cause us trouble, those kind of things. So I've, I've gotten into some into the weeds a little bit there, Mal, you want to help pull me out? No, I think and just uh, I think as OTs we need to remember we don't function like a fluorescent bulb. We function like a very intricate crystal chandelier, <laughs> and we go in lots of different directions, up and down, all to get the lights to go on. <clears throat> and so, a, a, a fluorescent bulb, you just start at the beginning and you work your way through. <clears throat> but a crystal chandelier is just all the pieces that come together for excellence, competency, and, and health. We shine bright like a diamond, if I may. All right. There we go. <laughs> there we <laughs> Just go. waiting to well say done. it. <laughs> That's good. All right. Moving on. Thank you for that answer. I, I think it is, it's a tough one, but I really appreciate you going into the detail that you did. It's it's not an easy answer. And it's something that I I think we have various beliefs on and i don't think there is one right answer and i think sherry kind of really narrowed it down you know it really depends on where the student is some students you might be more effective using a top-down approach and other students you might need to use more of that bottom-up approach it also depends on what their goals are where they are at in life and there's so much right like that's why i love the peo model right you have to look at the person the environment and the occupation you can't just look exactly. at one all right. Earlier, I think it was Molly, you mentioned a little bit about program evaluation. That is something that I have seen OTs, especially in the schools, struggle with, mostly because we don't have time to do that. But it's very important. You know, that's what leads to us developing that 
evidence that we talked about a little bit earlier as well, being able to create our own evidence comes from program evaluation. So I want to ask you, when it comes to the alert program, is there a way to evaluate your own program that you use with the alert program as a school-based OT? Absolutely. <laughs> program evaluation is my big, big thing that I would like to see OTs take and just run with it. But I think it goes into that category of research and it makes everybody apoplectic and they get intimidated and all that, but not necessary. It's not that difficult. First of all, in implementing the the alert program, training really provides accurate guidelines. And the training manual provides what we call fidelity measures, which is the degree to which an intervention or program is delivered as it was intended. Because sometimes research comes out and they say, well, they probably didn't do this or they did that. Did they apply the the intervention appropriately? Did they implement the alert program right? Well, the fidelity measures, which the manual really doesn't explicitly go through, but implicitly goes through, are there. We are planning to publish a list of fidelity measures. So therapists in schools and researchers, um, more in the scientific research method, could use those to make sure that when they are using the alert program, all the pieces of it are well implemented. Um, program evaluation, when therapists start at the beginning of the school year or start with a child, it just if you have a basic outcome you're after and you evaluate the level of that on some uh, Likert scale or some standardized test, and you determine all the strategies that you are going to use to be able to get to them and you just list them, And then you go through and implement and you look how to and you come back and you evaluate. Did I succeed or not? Is the behavior changed? Is the child's performance as we anticipated or not? What went well? What did not? All of those are program evaluation. If you don't do that, you just go blindly in applying therapeutic interventions without really knowing if your time is well spent. I worked with a a whole school system up in Canada who implemented the program because the OTs were getting more, they were getting more referrals than they could handle. Sounds familiar. <laughs> and much of the, <laughs> Yeah, nobody else has had that problem, huh? <laughs> and much of the issues, a lot of the issues, it was early elementary school were um, self-regulation. And so we created the program, the therapist, and, uh, and I consulted with them over a period of about six to nine months where we took the alert program and we said, these are all the pieces of the alert program that we want to implement in the classrooms for teachers in regular classrooms that have some special needs kids. Some of those kids came out for special intensive treatment, but the teachers were trained. And then we evaluated, we listed out the tools, the strategies, how we had stuff on the portal for them to go and get you know, boosted up on information of this or that, all the ways that we could really bolster those teachers' ability to implement the program in the classroom. And we had them all outlined, then we implemented it. And then we had an evaluation, which was a checklist at the end. The improvement, the teacher's response, the teacher's sense of efficacy, the teacher's sense of being satisfied much more in the classroom was astounding. They could take that data into the Board of Regents, which is what they have up in Canada, and they got more positions funded. 
There are other some programs I've worked with where they do a, a, a pilot. Go to your administrator. There are lots of grants out there, small grants that'll give you <clears throat> monies to either pay for your time or for equipment. There are lots of principals who right now, when they're really struggling, would say, oh, fine. What do we need to do? <clears throat> Get it going on a small one school basis, two or three classrooms, teachers who want to learn something new. Put it into place, but create your program evaluation framework before you start, then implement it and evaluate, and you have your data. It sounds um, so simple. I know, and and I will say, Molly did a, a brilliant job, in, and these were great OTs up there, too, but the... In my mind, Molly, another payoff besides that it was so incredibly effective was that some of the things that the therapists were spending a lot of time doing, so again, coming back to how limited we all feel about our time, were not the things that the teachers found to be the most helpful to them. That's the beauty of the program evaluation. They dug into this. And so then as a, what a relief as a therapist. Oh, I don't have to do I that. Have that to doesn't do help. I didn't yeah. have to do that anyway. And so that frees me up to do these other things that, um, because, um, Mal, you are always so great at saying we kind of sell ourselves short on the amazing amount of information that we have to offer people. And we just think it's kind of a given. And it's not. We have to explain all the good stuff we're doing and why we're doing it in the way that we are. But I found that to be such a fascinating component of that program evaluation that you did with them, Mal, the things that were so labor intensive for the therapist that they thought they needed to provide. Some of them were necessary, right. Yeah, yeah. And you know, and that's that'll get a, 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 a teacher, a therapist, an administrator buy into that because when there's only so much time and so much money, if you want to use your human resources well, and if you want to use your your uh, financial resources to buy equipment. Let's buy the stuff that's going to work. Let's use the time where we want to, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's fantastic. I, I could do, I mean, Molly, maybe we need to have you come on again and just talk an entire episode about program management one day. But I think it's something that many of us need to start doing and we're not doing. And I think we might see the value of it. We should. I don't know if our administrators see the value of it and we need to better connect that value to them. We need to share with our administrators how it could be even beneficial to them for us to do a program evaluation. I think administrators have become scared of OTs, PTs, speech therapists doing program evaluations because it often leads to spending more money. Um, and I think we need to figure out how to be more on the same page with them so that they're more inclined to to encourage us to do program evaluations. So yeah, that's kind of my take on, on that a little bit, but we need to do more of them. All right. And I'll, I'll just Go say ahead. too, um, I, know, I know we're getting along, but um, <laughs> that uh, our, my, my experience, very soon my experience in the schools was that People said, if you keep telling everybody information, you're just going to get more referrals for OT. And we actually found that to be the opposite, that when we gave classroom teachers enough to, uh, support to deal with the couple little things that were going on in the classroom, they didn't turn into being major things. They didn't yep. turn into more referrals. We got more appropriate referrals, but we did not get more in number referrals. So I think that speaks to some of that fear of the administrators you were saying, Jason. Yep. Yep. And we need to let them know that. I mean, they, yeah. they just assume that 
they hear us complaining. They hear us saying that we're drowning and they assume that if they listen to us, we're just going to say we need help by having more OTs on staff. Uh, but there are other ways to say I need help, but I don't need more OTs. I need to be allowed to do this or allowed to do that, which yeah, can sometimes to- be just as effective as bringing on another therapist to the team. So We need to be smarter. We need to do this smarter. Yep. We need to change exactly. the model we used a model for so long and the model isn't always working so let's let's pull back and not let the flurry and the craziness of what's happening in the systems just move us we need to stop and say we got to do this a different way and this is how Absolutely. and we got into a little bit of a trap or at least they that we did in in my main time being in the schools where somehow individual treatment was preferable to treatment in the classroom or support in the classroom and um, our poor parents, you know, they're trying to get the best for their kids. So if they're told, oh, individual treat, you must demand individual treatment and you must demand that the therapist do this and this and this and this is we, we kind of boxed ourselves into a corner and didn't again, look at the context of it. Right, Mal? I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. just interesting. Another topic for another day, I promise. Um, but with that, Let's go ahead and start wrapping up. I want to let you all share. You've already mentioned it a few times, Share You all do have a course now. I was just looking at it. Uh, at least the one I was looking at, it's uh, 2C use, which is 20 hours AOTA approved. I want to give you a moment to just share a little bit about the program that you have over on the website. Sure. Thank you. So we do have the alert program online course. That's the one you were looking at. We also have, and that is for when you're going to use in your practice, taking through and teaching your client about their own self-regulation. Okay. And then the year best self course is one that we developed a number, a couple years ago now here. And that is for adults to learn about their own self-regulation. So we have a lot of businesses that use that with their employees. We have a number of folks that work in trauma and behavioral health and stuff like that. And those counselors, social workers, those kind of folks that need to maybe understand that sensory motor component of that uh, so that they can help to show their clients information, but also to know it about themselves, right? So, and I think I'm really excited about the possibilities that we've had with certain agencies training their whole agency in the Your Best Self course. That one is, uh, I think it's uh, eight contact hours through AOTA. So what is that, 0.8? You can go do the math and look at it on the website. But on on the main website is the menu tab courses, and both the courses are listed there and kind of the differences of them. But I'm really thrilled because, you know, it's that same thing. Again, it applies to self-regulation applies to all of us. If if you are a runner and you get hurt and you can't do your running, you notice a difference in your self-regulation. And you would hopefully want people to be able to help help you or inform you about what you could do so that you don't just re-injure too quickly, but you go ahead and, um, you know, so it should be part of discharge planning. It should be part of all those good things. So I'm, I'm really excited about that course because it's new. I will say that one, not like we are deep into the neuro because that's not really our jam, but I mean, we, it's neurologically sound, the alert program, but I like to, to describe it as like the alert program and the lack of jargon is kind of like the express lane 
for neuro. And if you want to go on the wonderful country roads and do all the other great things of learning all about neuropathways and all that kind of and neurochemistry and all that good stuff, then that's the stuff where maybe you want to be trained in polyvagal theory and all those kind of good things. We actually have that as one example in the Your Best Self courses. Like, this is the express lane. We're talking neuro on Mr. Potato Head here, not in the very detailed way. And then we're going to go ahead and uh, if you want to dive into it, know that there are wonderful uh, other resources. So those are the two uh, courses that we have. We have lots of books, games, songs, all kinds of stuff like that on the, on the website, as you said. And um, uh, and we are an uh, AOTA approved provider of, of professional development. So uh, I won't belabor this at this point. Who wants to listen to that? Just go look at it if you're interested in it. Hey, yep. You say, you hit on the nail right there, right, everyone? Just go to alertprogram.com. You'll find it all there. And we will have all the links that we've mentioned in this podcast. I want to give a huge shout out to Chandler, who helps us find all that good stuff and put it into the show notes. Uh, for the show notes for this episode, you will find them at otschoolhouse.com slash episode 119. Or if you're listening to this on a podcast player like Spotify or Apple, just click on the link somewhere below where the play button is with that sherry molly thank you so much for being here today it was wonderful talking to you all about the alert program and program management or evaluation and all the good stuff really appreciate it and we'll have to stay in touch absolutely thanks so Great. much Jason. thanks for having us take care all right i hope your engine is still running well right now thank you so much to sherry and molly for coming on explaining the alert program and how it has evolved to support people around the world be sure to check out the show notes for this episode at otschoolhouse.com slash episode 119 or you can simply head to alertprogram.com to learn more about the program. If you go to the episode notes, we'll have direct links to the parts of their websites for all the things that they talked about. So that might be a good starting point. And then just have a blast looking at their program. They have courses. They have tons of free resources over there. So be sure to check it out. Until next time, take care, stay safe, and keep collaborating. Thank you for listening to the OT Schoolhouse podcast. For more ways to help you and your students succeed right now, head on over to otschoolhouse.com. Until next time, class is dismissed. <laughs>